0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Making a Scene podcast. My name is John Jeffrey. Thank you for joining me today. This is Making a Scene, and this is episode three of Making a Scene. So if you're new here, if you're just tuning in, let me tell you a bit about the show. This is a show where I like to interview and, and speak with people who I think are really unique characters, people who are unorthodox or creative individuals. They could be artists entrepreneurs, innovators, influencers, they could be activists and leaders, or they could even be educators and healers. All I'm interested in is that they're making some kind of a scene and that they are unique characters themselves. And in each episode, I want to go deep into whether it's a mentor they had or some kind of life experience or something they discovered or read about that's made them so unique, that's given them that kind of, you know, the, the special ingredient, the magic thing, right, that works for them to make the scene that they want to make. And I try to talk to them about how they integrate that into their work and how that makes their work different than other people in their field. And finally, we end with talking about the kind of scene that they want to make moving forward, what kind of impact they want to have and, and where they think their story is going. Um, today on the show for episode three, we have the one and only Jack Murphy. And I really love Speaking with Jack, it was um, you know, I'll I'll warn you now. The episode is um, uh, it's it's kind of political. He's he's a political guy, and I don't bring you that to um, to try to be some kind of partisan or a political pundit because I'm not that, and I don't want to be that. But politics is the realm in which Jack is a character, and it's the area in which he's literally making a big scene. Um, so this episode is going to be about political topics but i think that the uh, a resourceful way to listen to it even if you disagree or, or you don't like some of the things that maybe jack says is to instead uh, look at it from the perspective of a cultural critic who's undergone the treatment of the culture in which he's speaking about so jack will talk a lot about cancel culture and he feels that he has been actively canceled he'll talk about gender dynamics and that comes from his experience going through a rough divorce and, and coaching other men who, who've, you know, gone through similar situations. So, um, you know, have an open mind and, and jump right in, but let me tell you a bit about Jack. He is an author. He is, uh, he's the author of the book Democrats are deplorable, which is about why there were millions of people who voted for Obama in 2008 or 2012, who then switched to vote for Trump and might still be doing so and why, and why more might be on the way. Um, and uh, uh, from there, he's he's gone on to start kind of two other projects. One would be the Jack Murphy Live podcast, in which he interviews experts in logistics, uh, supply chain, economy, new technologies, and then uh, really kind of uh, kind of out there stuff like fourth generation warfare, narrative insurgency, uh, uh, you know, media manipulation, um, the really kind of deeper layers of marketing as it's applied to political influence. It's crazy shit. Uh, it, it's a very in-depth, very niche podcast, but it's it's truly it's an eye-opener to listen to some of the guests he has, and those kind of subjects are what he then goes on to teach and coach in his community called the Liminal Order, which is a men's community that helps professionals and um, um, uh, business owners, uh, investors, you know, kind of dudes who want to who want to be making big moves. And it kind of helps them form like they form like their own sort of uh, 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 intelligence network, as it were, of civilians. And it's, it's kind of crazy to watch the kind of things they can do. Um, and, of course, Jack is also a journalist and cultural critic and, and a blogger as well. And you can find him at jackmurphylive.com. This episode was really, really fun, truly. Um, and I hope to have Jack back on again soon. But before we get to the interview, I want to ask, are you a freelancer? Are you some kind of producer on a production crew or you're producing content, producing media? Are you you know, interning at, at various agencies or with different kinds of creators and brands? Do you have a camera in your hand or you're working on a stage or you're working in a sound booth or you're playing an instrument? Whatever kind of creative work that you do that you like to share with the world and share with clients. This group that I'm about to tell you about is probably for you, and it's the Artworks Group on Facebook, created by my company, Logos Productions, and uh, you can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash artworks group, and the whole point of the group is we want to empower freelancers, both in their craft and their career, so get in there, and uh, there will be other freelancers, and then people who are further along the road who can who can maybe give you some great advice about how to hone your craft, but then also advance your career, find better clients, raise your rates, you know, find that dream gig, learn to close a sale better. Uh, what kind of stuff to have on your portfolio? And we're always having fun discussions in there too. We post fucking memes every Sunday. It's great. So don't miss meme day. That's coming up. Um, So I definitely would encourage you to check out that group and and I'll be in there. So come say hi to me. And I'm of course posting opportunities to work at logos in there as well. And I know a lot of agency owners, so I'm I'm always trying to send people their way as well. So the group, the point of it isn't to solicit work. It's to help each other find gigs. And of course I will be posting any opportunities I have uh, there. So that's at facebook.com slash groups slash artworks group. All right. Enough of that. This is the third interview in the COVID sessions, the quarantine sessions, as it were. This was originally recorded in early February, I believe. Um, and again, these these pre-recorded interviews from earlier in 2020. Um, um, you know, COVID made me reevaluate a lot of things, and and uh, particular particularly in regard to this episode, it's like. Well, we are talking about politics, and obviously COVID has changed a lot of the political sphere. So some of the things we're talking about, if there were predictions made that turned out right, turned out wrong, or certain contexts that it's like, why are you talking about that? It's because we recorded it, um, you know, pre-COVID. But we are recording new episodes, and those are coming out soon. So these first eight are sort of the, the old ones, and then we're making new ones. But regardless, it's a great interview, and it was an absolute joy to talk to Jack. So... Without any further ado, let me introduce you to Mr. Jack Murphy. Here on the podcast, we have a really special guest today. His name is Jack Murphy. Now, I've been following this guy for about a year, year and a half, uh, mostly on Twitter, but also through his podcast. Uh, Jack Murphy is an author. He is a podcaster. He's a speaker. He's an entrepreneur. And he is a teacher. Uh, You might know him from his very popular book, Democrat to Deplorable, the story of why 9 million people dumped Obama for Trump. And he's also the founder and the main instructor at the liminal border community. Jack, thanks so much for coming on today.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, man, there's so much to cover with you, but honestly, what what I'm most impressed with is like, especially as kind of a younger guy myself, seeing how you had like a phoenix story where like your your life kind of burnt up you had some shit go down and then you came out of it like way stronger way better on the other end of it so for people who aren't familiar with you uh i think that might be a good place to start is what your story is where you came from and how you went from being an entrepreneur and an executive to being uh, kind of in charge of this brand here
1: yeah thanks uh it is a it is a fascinating story and it you can go back really far but i think you summed up one element really well which is that i've always been an entrepreneur and i've always been operating a little bit outside of the standard paths that people take i mean for example when i was just you know like 10 or 11 years old you know not only did i have like a paper route but my friend and i went around and we like created a mini little construction company and help people like repair their driveways and stuff. So I've always been hustling my whole life and thinking sort of outside the box. Um, and that led me originally into uh, working in real estate so I worked in real estate in DC for a number of years. I started a construction company, an architecture and design firm, real estate development a brokerage and uh, we service clients did our own projects made our own, made our own hustle. Uh, And along the way, also, I've also been just sort of like a rebel, I guess, a little bit outside. Um, You know, I was very involved in the electronic dance music scene in the 90s. I was a DJ and a promoter and and a lot of the other sort of things that come along with uh, living in that lifestyle. And so I, uh, you know, have always always felt like a rebel, always felt like an outsider. Um, which is why real estate was really appealing to me uh, because that's something you just kind of do on your own. And it's a, it's a very well-financed, high leverage business that you can do without having to really work for a big company or or fit into a corporate structure. Uh, but the real estate market died eventually in DC, like around 2008 or so in the big financial crash. And at that time, I got involved with uh, charter schools, which are independently owned privately operated, but yet public schools in Washington DC and all across the country. And each of these schools are responsible for p- developing their own real estate. So that's the angle that I had when I got in there. I helped these schools build buildings and, and plan out their long-term real estate needs. But after just doing some financial work for one for one school, they asked me if I wanted to be a, a consultant and then a CFO and then the COO. And before you know it, I was executive director. And uh, what was great about uh, the charter school world is that there is a lot of autonomy and independence. And so I was able to act sort of entrepreneurially there as well. And I ended up taking over some of the most uh, troubled and distressed schools in the District of Columbia and helped turning them around through doing things that were pretty radical and sort of outside of the norm and, and very aggressive. And we got, we got really great results. Um, and all that was going really well. Um, and so along the way, I was also writing. Um, I, you know, I got divorced in 2009. I discovered, you know, the Manosphere, Red Pill stuff, uh, just started reading and reading and reading and reading, and then I decided to start writing, common story, a lot of guys do the same thing, Start blogging, and uh, got on Twitter, and then uh, Donald Trump happened, and so then the election really took off in 2015, and that sucked a lot of us into thinking about things uh, from a political perspective, because if you spend any time reading the sort of positive masculinity you know, readings or writings, you can begin to see how the things that, that affect our relationships and the dating and mating market in the world today also are the same things that are affecting our political markets and our, and our economy and our society in general. So it was a very natural segue to go from writing about uh, relationships and, and the circumstances we find ourselves in to then thinking about the larger cultural issues. So all this is happening at the same time is I'm still working in charter schools, right? So I'm still working every day to help educate the poorest minorities in, in the District of Columbia. And when I say poor, I mean like 100% of the students were below the poverty line. And in DC, that means for a family of four, having $25,000 a year for a family of four. So we're talking about really needy kids. And I was doing really good work. And at the same time, I'm also writing now about politics too. And uh, there's a lot going on where I live in Washington, DC. And so one day I went down and covered a protest between uh, the alt-right guys and the Antifa people. They were like, they squared up in front of the White House. There was like, it was like revolutionary war style, like on either side, two lines, they just marched right towards each other. And and, uh, I just stood like right in the middle, just taking pictures and just sort of observing everything. And I happened to be photographed in a picture with, this guy, uh, Jason Kessler, who was the one who organized the Charlottesville debacle. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a whole other story that happened, but the long story is that, or the short story is that those photos surfaced, other photos surfaced, and the uh, Antifa people um, wanted to figure out who I was. And you know, I was using a pen name, Jack Murphy's pen name, it's, it's sort of my real name, but it is definitely my real name now. Uh, Jack Murphy, I was using a pen name, so they wanted to discover who I was and uh they did some crazy backtracing thing and figured me out and launched a campaign to get me fired from my job so you know i've been working 10 years in charter schools helping turn around some of the worst performing schools in the city and in a matter of, a, of minutes uh, because of a coordinated misinformation and slander and defamation you know campaign by antifa they called me nazi and racist and uh, I, got, I got fired from that job after uh, like two-month investigation, depositions, lawyers, uh, you know, testimony, all this crap, you know, like I am not now nor have I ever been a member of the alt-right, like things like that I had to say to try to save my job, but it didn't matter. And I never apologized because they were wrong. I was right. And uh, it ended up getting me getting fired. So, you know, that was um, March, I guess, 2018. And uh, there, wasn't a very, there wasn't there weren't very many options for me. Let's just say that. The charter school world was completely closed off because, you know, you can't be a racist, not that I am, but you can't even have the accusations of being a racist or a Nazi and work in a field that's so heavily uh, infected with discussions of race and such. And so that, that field was totally cut off for me. I've always been an inter- independent, entrepreneur, sort of a renegade. Um, my book was about ready to come out. And so I added all those things up together and realized that the only way forward was to sort of jujitsu this negative energy, turn it around on itself and turn it into something that was going to be really positive for me. You know, I had been reading the anti-fragile, you know, lessons out there. I've read Taleb's book. I've, I've read a bunch of people talk about the anti-fragile sort of business approach and lifestyle. And <clears throat> I figured, well, fuck man, I'm getting all this pub I'm getting, you know, it's like a national story and, people are blowing up my phone and you know, there's articles written that still are out there in SEO sort of zombie land. Uh, you know, and the, the, the ACLU was interested in taking my case and I talked to them for a long time. So this was, there was a lot going on. So I just took all that energy and I turned it into something positive for myself. And, uh, I realized that I had become a victim of the things that I was writing about, um, misinformation, online network wars, um, you know, the, this misapplication of this term, of these bit terms about bigotry. And, and, and I realized that, you know, not only was I writing about it, but I'm now living it. And now I'm actually sort of a, 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 a cast member in this movie. And now, now I have sort of a path and a role to play that was bigger than I had anticipated. And so I just doubled down. I just put my foot down, pushed hard, put the book out, did a did a national tour where I traveled around to various universities, talked to kids promoting the book, um, did some 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 public speaking at a few conferences and whatnot and got one coming up here in a couple months again. And uh just went just went all the way as hard as I possibly could. You know, it's uh <clears throat> there are times in your life where there are very few choices in front of you. <laughs> and and even even so, they're still hard to take. And I'll admit it was it was quite a struggle to go from, you know, being like, what, 41 years old with a lifetime of accomplishments, you know, master's degree, multiple successes in different industries, and then just have basically my resume just ripped up and and torn to shreds right in front of my face. And so, you know, that whole part of my life just kind of vanished that all that work uh, that I had put into building credibility and reputation and uh, bonafides, you know, just poof right up in the thin air. So you know, it was a dark time, man i I'll, I'll admit there were definitely some periods of time there where you know the f- the future looked bleak, but uh, you know i'm not I'm not um, one to give up and'm um, definitely a fighter. So uh, I saw this as a as a challenge and opportunity, and I just fucking went for it, man. and here we are now. Uh, it's been it's been just about two years since I was doxed. And uh, I've been able to enter into and become highly successful in an entirely new professional career. And not only uh, just being successful professionally, but uh, sort of spiritually and morally, in my sense, because uh, the liminal order is something I believe that's doing a lot of good for people in the world and a lot of good for men. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to have my, my professional life, my personal life, my values, my goals, my vision for the future, uh, and my hobbies like, like writing and social media, having it all lined up together. And so every day, everything I do is, is focused on my mission. And that mission is bringing me all kinds of satisfaction, exploration, new opportunities, and, uh, and now a, a full-time new professional career. So it's, it's been a crazy ride. Um, but I do believe that I'm really only just getting started and uh, 2020 and beyond are going to be really, really impressive and fun for me.
0: That's such a crazy story, man. That, <laughs> honestly, that's like, you, you know, you got handed a a bucket of shit in, in the yeah. eyes of other people might've seen that as the worst thing that could have ever happened. And then you turned it into something good. And that's like, that's such a common theme I'm noticing with people who, uh, weren't asking for that kind of political attention necessarily. Like, Mm-mm. um, one of my clients, Kiara Bickers, she was just on the podcast last week. Um, You might know her from uh, Cernovich's Hoax documentary. um,
1: Oh, yeah, sure.
0: By Kiara Robles. She was um, maced by Antifa because she was wearing what they thought was a MAGA hat, but it was a Bitcoin hat at um, a Milo Yiannopoulos event. And then all of a sudden, she's attacked by Antifa, her name's all over the news, all kinds of crazy shit going on. And now she's leveraged that, what was supposed to be at first, like, you know, she was in the tech community. She was in the Bitcoin community, which is pretty far left community and she was getting some hate at first because of it and then it she managed to leverage that into having her own business um we're working with her to put out a book and a course now but that's just a story that you see so many times it's like when you can get attacked and you can take it sitting down and let it fester and ruin your life or you can be like well gotta like you said jujitsu roll with it and turn it into something good now
1: yeah, well, you know, cancel culture is a real thing and it's an epidemic and it's a problem, and it's, but it doesn't necessarily apply equally to all people. Um, I would say that guys like Kevin Hart that get canceled from doing the Oscars or whatever, uh, they're not suffering any ill effects of uh, quote cancellation culture. Um, but there are people <clears throat> who are just regular folks that don't have a million billion dollars behind them, don't have a million social media followers already. Uh, and they um experience these episodes of mob hate and destruction, where their goal of the mob is to exile you and to ruin you. It's like an assassination attempt. it's It's really meant to destroy your life and to keep you from participating in in common culture, just in our society. You know they're 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 taking away people's abilities to do financial transactions, social media presence, communication methods, uh, making you so toxic, other people don't wanna hang out with you or even be seen or associated with you in any capacity. Make it so that when anybody applies for a job in the human resources department, Googles your name at the first thing that comes up is some lie and bullshit about how you're a racist or a Nazi, or maybe not even that. Maybe you just said something stupid that got caught on video that is now gonna be the defining moment of your life for the rest of your life. And there are people every day who have to deal with that, that that aren't equipped to bounce back. Uh, And there are people, you know, unlike myself, who I will admit, I'm sort of on the far end of like um, willpower and urge to fight and some level of resources. But I would say I'm an exceptional case. And I think that most people that experience this cancellation uh, end up suffering some serious, serious consequences. There was a story I read about a guy who Uh, something, Something he did or said stupid got put on YouTube and it was the number one thing for his name and he couldn't escape it. And he got fired from his job and he applied for jobs for like two years. One day his friends and family hadn't heard from him for a while and they finally just, just discovered I'm like dead in his car.
0: Like, Jesus.
1: I feel, I feel the power of the SEO. You type in my real name and you type in my pen name, you, it, in two seconds you can read 50 articles about people calling me a racist, Nazi, bigoted, you know, misogynist or whatever. You know, I, I feel that, I know that. Um, and so there wasn't a future for me in, in um, what's the word I'm looking for? want to say acceptable culture, common culture, I can't remember, a polite company. There was no future for me in polite company, which in some ways is fine because I never wanted your polite company anyway. Um, But, you know, I did like the money. Uh, So it was, uh, and and, and I did like, you know, the work that I was doing was really tremendous. And that's one of the saddest things about it, is having that taken away from me. Um, But uh, not everybody has the same uh, anti-fragility, and slash resilience in order to to turn that around and to make it something worthwhile. And I'm just eternally grateful for the support of all my followers, readers, listeners, uh, book buyers, members of Liminal Order. Um, you know, people donated just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to me to help me with legal fees and to help me with uh, you know getting my studio set up and. Uh, travel and just helping me get started down this down this road in a full time way um, that other people just don't have access to so to everyone that ever supported me to retweets, likes, uh, book reviews, donations, members in the liminal order, all of it, you know I really sincerely appreciate it because none of this stuff would be possible without you guys at all
0: damn man I, so one thing that is kind of standing out to me is one of the things that might make you more capable of being anti fragile is yes, there 's probably a personality element or you know skills you developed from from your career, but one of those skills is being able to identify narrative warfare mm. and strategies mm. and you talk a lot about this on the um, on the sales page for the liminal order. I was going through that, and you sort of identify these different factions, the blue church, mm-hmm. the Red insurgency, and then the the resistance group i 'm I'm curious about, in terms of understanding narrative warfare and, and media strategies and how uh, political movements form, how did you understand that when you were working for the charter schools, for example, and how is, has your understanding of that evolved? What's your growth with that subject been like?
1: That's a, that's a very good question. <clears throat> um, in my in my book, Democrat to the Plurable, I outline an experience that I had um, with one of my schools where I was doing everything right. My, all of our metrics were, were awesome. Everything was going in the right direction. Um, but my board of directors, uh, wanted to move me out. Maybe I made the job look too, too easy or something. I don't know, but it was a bunch of women and, and I hate to say also minority women too, but they wanted me out. So they made up some bullshit that I was like creating a hostile work environment in my in, in my uh, office, which is a total horseshit, because uh, basically everybody that I hired was either African American or female or both because that's who works in education in DC. And everybody was returning and everybody was happy and my performance review was fantastic. So it was all just a bunch of lies. So what I discovered there was that, that was the first time I discovered that <clears throat> they, there had, narrative power had been weaponized in such a way where you could just create a story about somebody And that story sticks, whether or not it's true, whether or not there's any data or any facts to back it up. Uh, And the way they even came to have this idea of creating the story was just by watching other people do it. So it's sort of like an emergent phenomenon where loosely affiliated networks of people are starting to see what narrative powers and, and structures stick on people. And so that was the first time, that was back in like 2014, I think, where I experienced the power of the narrative and how does the person who is usually first that story sticks usually even if it's incorrect Um, but i didn't know what it all meant right i didn't know where it all came from i was just i just experienced it and being this the inquisitive guy that i am i just just kept reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and reading as much as i possibly could and there were there were two gentlemen who really had a lot of influence on my thinking and they've both been on my podcast uh, John Robb is one of them, and he uh, was a former special operations officer, he wrote a book called uh, Brave New War, I believe it is, where he saw the future of networked insurgencies and network warfare. And he also was like a a leader in technology. He helped create RSS, for example. So he's been in technology space for a long time, understands military strategy and warfare, and was able to see all of these things happening because of his expertise in, in networks and understanding how networks operate. So reading John Robb has been really, really helpful and influential, and you guys should check out his episode that I did with him last year on the podcast. He's also coming up again later this year. And then Jordan Hall, another major tech guy, uh, he was like i think founder and ceo of DivX, which was uh one of the first uh, video compression um out, you know video compression companies years ago on the internet that helped uh, you know facilitate you know streaming video and such uh and he's just crazy smart guy so smart it's, it's sometimes hard to talk to him cuz his brain moves so fast but he identified uh these two factions the the blue church which is you know the sort of leftist dominated media university uh finance baking baking you know marketing all, all, all the things that you would affiliate also then with deep state to sort of the institutions within the government intelligence agencies defense industries and such all of them had been wrapped together under um following certain narrative structures and that power came from the way that the narratives were distributed so in this case in the old days the blue church their power came from the fact that there was like one guy on the nightly news who would tell everybody what to think. And that was very powerful and effective for creating what he, Jordan Hall called social cohesion, right? So if you go back to like Hariri's uh, Her- book, Sapiens, you know, he talks a lot about how we organize our- ourselves around imagined orders. And it's basically like stories in our heads that are what bring our tribes together. Um, we have the capacity to only maintain certain number of relationships and we don't know how to actually judge people all the time. So one way that we judge them is, do they believe in the same stories that we believe? And so when the blue church had total control over all the narratives, it was easy to sort of build some social cohesion, even if it was around lies, right? Well, what he saw and what we've all experienced is that social media has completely changed that landscape. And instead of one person talking to a million people, you got a million people talking to a million people. So what that means, there's now more uh, opportunities for additional narratives to seep into, um, into the conversation. Uh, and so instead of having a dominated discourse that's meant to you know, create social cohesion and control people, we now actually have a completely distributed social discourse which has the effect of, of, of polarizing and tribalizing all of us. Because now instead of just picking from one or two narratives to believe and then to signal to others that this is the tribe that we belong to based on this shared understanding of some imagination, you know, imaginary story, now we can pick and choose and niche down and pick one and find one that matches us and suits us even better. So when you take these two concepts together with the network warfare from John Robb, you know, the idea of the blue church, Jordan Hall describes it also as a red insurgency, and you sort of put it all together with, uh, intersectionality and radical feminism, your own experiences on social media and Twitter and whatever, you can really begin to see how the stories are what are, is driving everything. Um, Scott Adams, who's gonna be on my podcast tomorrow, he's famous for saying that we're you know, watching two different movies on the same screen or whatever his analogy is. We're, all, we're, we're watching two different you know, movies, we don't have any common perception of reality Um, as he says in his book, it feels the same to be exactly right as it does to be exactly wrong. And, And so, and so, um, now it's a battle for like in the old days, it would be a battle to control the method of information distribution. So if you wanted to have control of the narrative, you would have to start like a TV network, buy satellites, you know, <laughs> launch them into space, build a huge network and studios and put people in offices all over the world and shit. Now if you just have I mean I'm still using I'm still using an iPhone 6s, right? Like I that's all I need in order to get my story and narrative out into the world. And if you get enough network momentum and connect to the right nodes, your ideas can flow out into into the space and start to influence people. And so that's that's what we're seeing. It's just a struggle, a narrative jungle. We're in a narrative jungle now. It's like uh, the old sort of <clears throat> Hobbesian universe of, of the natural state of man. But in this case, it's the natural state of ideas. And <laughs> we're in this, this natural state of narrative of jungle. And it's, it is nasty, it is brutish. The, the cycles are very short. Uh, but ultimately, Jordan Hall and others do believe that we're going to go through a process here where it's just gonna keep iterating and iterating and iterating over and over and over again. And people are gonna be observing, orienting, deciding, acting over and over and over and over again. And there may be a new, a new equilibrium at some point, but that is far away from now. Uh, and so right now and for the foreseeable future, all, all there is out there is uh, just competition for that space in your brain where you can latch on to that imaginary story by imaginary, I don't mean it's real or fake. I just mean it's not. You can't touch it. It's not a thing. It's all in your head. These are just ideas in your head that control the way we think, feel, see the world, operate, love, interact. You know, do business with, vote, have wars over. All these things are controlled by just little stories that seep into your into your body, into your brain, and then uh, you know find themselves manifesting in your behavior. So that's where we are. And it took me, took me a while to come to like a really solid understanding of all this. And I'm still learning, of course, but uh, sort of just the nature of who I am and the way I like to do things, I had to figure it out. So I had, I had to have the answers and I wasn't going to stop. And I'm still not stopping, which is the beauty of my whole thing now is that basically my guys, my followers, my audience, we're all on a journey together, an intellectual journey um, and uh, I just wake up every day, and my, my literal job is to dig deeper and find find more pieces of truth and present them to my audience and have us process that, synthesize it, and turn it around into something useful for us to to lead a healthier, happier, and more productive life. It's pretty sweet, got to say.
0: Yeah, man. So So then what I'm curious about is what can someone who who is starting out in business or starting out in branding or, or art or any of these kind of self-led, um, self-led ways of life. Um, what can they learn from you in terms of hmm. learning the skills of narrative warfare or, hmm. or, or learning about this landscape of narratives, landscape of ideas and how to maneuver through that. And just yes. some, some context on that because What I'm learning with my clients, like I started off mostly just doing, I guess you would call it like a two-dimensional or three-dimensional kind of view at it where it's like, okay, this is the world that we're operating in. I'm helping them do marketing. I'm helping them with social media content. And it's like, okay, well, we're trying to talk to these people over here so that we can sell something and easy, right? But what I found is that the kind of clients that I'm attracted to and like working with uh, tend to get into a lot of political trouble, um, mm. and there 's always that um, that concern for like okay we can we can try to send the message from A to B, but then C is going to come in and try to intercept it and say some shit, or there 's going to be you know a shadow ban that might happen mm. so even if someone 's not necessarily political, like you mentioned Kevin Hart now his life wasn 't ruined, but I'm sure he would have loved to host the Oscars, right? So even if someone's not inherently political, they're coming up against some of these obstacles. So how would you suggest what tools, principles, ideas would you give to people who want to be able to protect themselves and maneuver strategically through this jungle without getting scathed, even if if they're not political, you know?
1: Hmm. Well, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah so i mean i think the first thing is just to keep learning right so like we all have to be more so than ever we have to be responsible for our own intellectual journey today um the the information and the data and the the education you get from your more formalized institutions and structures is a bunch of shit these days It's totally fucking useless barely even teach critical thinking at all Um, but they certainly don't teach you practical skills. So perhaps the number one thing you can do is just adopt a mindset of like ever, like I continuously have to be learning and exploring and understanding new things. And so when you do that, I think it sets the stage for somebody that's gonna be able to process information and and is constantly seeking a new, higher, better outcome. Um, But in terms of the tactical stuff, I mean, I mean, hey start with my podcast, start with my podcast and work your way all the way through uh, and stick with me because this is exactly the kind of question that I'm trying to figure out right this is exactly what I'm trying to help the guys in the liminal order do, which is to how do we become better equipped to succeed in today's new environment uh, and that involves a lot of uh, a lot of learning involves a lot of processing involves really focusing on on six areas uh, of that we've come to refer to it as personal sovereignty. I got that from Jordan Hall also, but we've taken it really from theoretical into practical. And a couple of them are, dis- is one of them is discernment. So like this this is an element of personal sovereignty that you have to develop. You have to develop your ability to discern back from fiction, truth from a lie, relevant from irrelevant, signal to noise. Uh, and it's it's a skill that's even more useful today because there's so much fucking noise out there, right? so much noise out there. And so there is a system and there is sort of a new philosophy that we're trying to to build um, that is going to equip people to deal with this environment. Now, if I were giving advice to somebody who was like 20 or 18 and hasn't really gotten on social media yet, I would be like, all right, well, you have a chance to actually be very careful about things because I'm 44. So I came up, I, I remember 300 baud modems and 9600. And like, I, I remember watching pictures download one line at a time, right? So I've been online since you could be online, but we didn't know what it really meant. And we didn't know how how forever it was. And, you know, and you also don't know that you're going to maybe go from somebody with 50 followers to 30,000 in just a couple of years. And so that has a different set of responsibilities, right? Like I wouldn't, There are things I wrote and said with 50 or 100 followers where I would hope to get 25 reads on a blog. Things I said then that I would never say now knowing I'm gonna get literally thousands of people to read it and it's gonna get, maybe could get like half a million views on Twitter. Like that's just, you know, you just have to be more careful. Um, And so I think guys coming up who are a little younger have an advantage in that sense in that they can start off their social media and online sort of footprint without being as stupid as I was. But there's a certain, you have to be high variance in order to get noticed. And what I mean by that is that discoverability is the most difficult element of marketing or sales or brand development or personal brand exploration or whatever, uh, or just thinking or being a thought leader. Discoverability. How many guys do you know with 50 followers that are actually really super smart and have a lot of cool things to say, but nobody's listening to them? I mean, it's not an issue of whether or not they're smart. Uh, it's not an issue of whether or not they've got something interesting to say. Um, they could be the smartest fucking guy in the world, but if nobody knows them or is listening to them, then that power is greatly diminished. So discoverability is like the main, the main challenge. Um, you can learn how to write copy. You can learn how to think, you can learn how to do sales stuff. You can learn the whole talent stack, which I've taught myself from start to finish, storytelling, tech stuff, marketing, copywriting, sales techniques, persuasion techniques, launch techniques. You know, I've learned and and, and taught myself all that stuff. Um, But discoverability is the trick. If you don't get discovered, you can be the best copywriter in the whole world and have the best product with the best offer and your social media history can be pristine and clean and no one can touch you, but if no one knows who you are, it doesn't matter. And so when I say you have to be high variance in order to be discovered, that means you have to like, some of the things that you do and say have to go really far outside of the norms because shock, 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 shock value, right? Shock value spreads so much more than, uh, than deep insights. <laughs> like, today, the deepest insights that you have are terrifying. <laughs> like nobody's gonna, <laughs> nobody's gonna spread that really. You know, it's like, oh, we're set up for like 50 years of some crazy cyber tribal warfare that nobody knows what's gonna happen and governments are gonna fall by the wayside and political parties are gonna be destroyed. Well, uh, no, you know, that's, that's scary. But if you say something crazy, You know, if you do something crazy, if you chain yourself to the front door of fucking Twitter or something, then you get discovered and then people hear you. So you kind of have to, you have to do stuff that's a little crazy in order to get people to listen in the first place, you know, draw them in with the outrage and keep them around with the content. That's sort of a, a general, generally good philosophy. Although a lot of people will tell you that viral traffic doesn't convert for shit. And in and, and a lot of ways, it, it doesn't. Uh, but I will say on Twitter, when my, when my tweets go viral, I definitely, definitely have an acceleration and follower count. Um, but you have to, you know, so then of course you have to have the content to back it up from behind. But my whole, my whole point in saying this is that like my discoverability moments were really horrible and shitty for me, <laughs> okay? So uh, be careful what you wish for. Right, like mo- most of the time your discoverability moment is not gonna be something super positive, right? Because people don't spread positive news or information as quickly as they spread negative news or information. And so very few people that I've noticed have been able to just you know, work their way up through the whole pyramid without having something shocking or outlandish or being uh, you know, far out in one field or the other. Um and, and a lot of it is done to get attention, but you know, it's the attention economy. You need to get people's attention in order to get anywhere. The copywriting, the sales, the best website, great images, good, all that shit. None of that, you know, it's all important, but and but none of it's special. You can learn all that. It's just technique. It's just like learning how to build a table or whatever. You just learn how to build a table. But if you don't get discovered, you've got nothing. So when people ask me, how do I get started? You know, I told them, I'm like, look, I blogged and wrote in relative obscurity for a couple of years, and it took like people trying to assassinate me in public for me to really get the legs and momentum going in order for me to make a real difference in the world. And you ask yourself, well, is that something that you really want to have happen? Is that something you want to have happen to yourself? Now, some people manufacture that shit, right? They will create events that will make them, get them infamy and notoriety. And there is definitely some value in that. Um, I do remember chicken sandwich wars or whatever, like Popeyes and Chick-fil-A, they're all, fi- they're all fighting. They're Twitter, you know, avatars are like fighting online stuff, creating a conflict, creating attention. Um, Cause you know, one of the basic fundamental concepts of persuasion is that attention is influence, right? So how do you get attention? People love fights so conflict is attention now that model worked really well for somebody like mike cernovich right conflict is attention attention is persuasion persuasion is influence mm-hmm. and so he put that together conflict is 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 uh, is influence and that, and that worked for him but you know what he doesn't he has has moved further further away from that model also for one it's fucking exhausting and two it's like contri- it's contrived you know you're you're right. you're fabricating you're making things happen you're not it's not lying per se but like you, you're creating a, a conflict in order to get attention, in order to be persuasive. So, there's if there's like a a path to to becoming, um, you know, to making your audience big enough that gives you that scale that you need. If is there a path to that that is? virtuous and low stress and all positive. Well, I don't know. Ask AJ Cortez, for example. You know, he, he is somebody who has a, has a shit ton of great content and is a great thinker and a great trainer. He's been writing, doing this stuff for a long ass time. But the things that really blew him over the top were like super controversial tweets or like, you know, outrageous things that he said and did. But of course he can back it up with high quality content. So you know, the question is, are you positioned so that you can roll the dice like that? Uh, And I think the answer to that for most people is no, unfortunately. Um, You know, I want to encourage people as best I can, but I also want people to be realistic. And, you know, if you think you're going to publish a book with, you know, 5,000 followers and have it be enough to support yourself, you're probably mistaken. Right? Um, There's a lot, a lot more to it than that. I mean, even my book did really well, but that's not my primary source of income and that wasn't I wanted it to be, <laughs> you know. I had dream, I had dreams of it. I'm like, well, shit. If I could just sell like 35 copies a day, every single day of the year for the entire year, oh, that'll be good, right? But come on, like, that like less than 0.01 percent of books sell that many. Now I've sold a ton, I've sold more than I want, or than I hoped, uh, and they can cont- continues to sell. In fact, sales are up like three months in a row now. So I'm pretty. if it's two years later. I'm pretty happy about that, but. It's all the other shit that came from it. So, you know, a book these days is just sort of like a a business card or an entry point into a little bit more of a sophisticated audience because you've proven that you can really do something if your book's any good. Um, But, you know, like I said, it all comes back. You have to be high variance in order to become discovered in this environment, uh, unless you're just some amazingly wicked networker. Um, And, you know, the way to do that is to be to offer value to people. And, you know, you have to really put yourself out there and on that front, I'll say social media networks. Um, if you think you're going to grow your social media network just by tweeting a lot or putting out a lot of blog posts, you're absolutely wrong. Uh, the most powerful social media online networks are built offline with handshakes and closed rooms and at dinner tables and over drinks. They're done over, you know, birthday parties and social events and shit. Cause guess what guys, most of the big nodes in my net Twitter network, they're at my actual friends, right? <laughs> like, Like, you know, so if it ever seems like there's like a cabal or a conspiracy or like it's clicky or whatever it is, it totally is. And that's because people like to work with people that they like and you have to create genuine friendships first. People with powerful social media accounts know that people are trying to be friends with them for their power. You know, I've warned our friend Roman McClay about that all the time. People keep coming to him Keep coming to him now with all these ideas and asks and questions and wants and stuff, and that's because he's starting to have some juice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I I worry about that for him. Um, But uh, yeah, if you're going to build a powerful social media network, you have to get out in life and make friends with people (laughs) off (laughs) offline. As crazy as that sounds,
0: get off Twitter and go make some real friends, and then we're ready. Marketing tip, piss off Antifa. Yeah, I I mean, you know, you mentioned Mike Cernovich moving away from kind of the the controversial marketing angle and like he has two kids now so i don't blame him for that at all it's like i remember seeing videos of antifa you know threatening to put like chemicals in the air ducts at one of his events or something oh, yeah. And it's like Dude, yeah, i was, that I was at
1: know. that event they were there they were planning to gas the event with toxic gas and they got arrested for it <laughs> thank god the project veritas and james O'Keefe they they had undercover guys within antifa and they discovered that and they got those guys arrested you're right it's crazy mike's had death threats mike i mean i have had too i mean i've had people chasing me around telling me that you know they were going to fill me with lead and there's like a black you know a, a mob of people and you know wearing black standing outside just screaming and yelling at me when i'm just trying to have drinks and dinner with friends so yeah for somebody like mike you know you know he got sucked up way into the political thing he was mike was uh Mike became a chess piece. Mike, Mike's a chess master himself, but he also became a chess piece. People were using him from above to, to do their bidding as well, too. So he got caught up in a much, much, much
0: bigger game. That is for sure. I'd ask you more about what you mean by that, but I have a feeling you probably can't tell me.
1: I mean, I mean it's pretty obvious. If you just look at uh, – his content and the things that he talks about and the people that affiliated with him and helped him and boost him, you know, he made it up on Drudge for a while, you know, and he's on Alex Jones and, you know, he had a very powerful and does still have a very powerful uh, communication system. And so whenever you, and it's the same thing with Roman, right? It's like, Romans is just on 1000th of as Mike's right now. But as soon as you build something, people start coming to you looking to use your power for their benefit. So we're all pieces on somebody else's chessboard at all the time, whether you know it or not. And, uh, you know, that's why Mike's sort of threat profile was probably pretty high there for some time because he was, you know, intimately involved in the political operations and things. I mean, the guy was breaking stories about national security council meetings and things that the the chief, you know, the head of our national security were saying behind closed doors and stuff. So like you start doing that, then you get attention from a lot of people that want you either helped silenced or whatever. Um, So, you know, that, that's a a slightly different profile that 99.9 to the nth degree of your listeners aren't ever going to have to worry about. But even for somebody like me, uh, I I still have had to deal with that. I mean, and it's not just like you walk down the street and people yell at you. Um, It's that they find out where you coach Little League and then they write the Little League board and they get you banned from coaching Little League. So it's like, it's shit like that, that happens. I mean, that happened to me too. So uh, it is sort of like a constant uh, warfare. Uh, especially if you touch anywhere near politics, anywhere near you know modern culture or philosophy, um, and even if you don't, you're invariably going to say something that pisses off people in those spheres too. So you get sucked into it. Um, it's hard because the polit- politics is everything right now. Um, it's everywhere. Everybody is involved, um, or at least they think they are. Or they care. Everybody's super passionate. So it's a interesting I don't know if it was always like this it doesn't seem like it to me it seems sort of new that politics is like our new national pastime but um, you know but for most of your guys I don't think they have to worry too too much about that but it is this fine line between am I going to toil away in obscurity or am I going to say something that people are going to share uh, and that is you know that right there is basically sums up the, the sad state of affairs in all of our media today, because they know specifically how to maximize profits by maximizing your outrage. And that is what they have to do legally and, op- and they're, they're obligated to do it to their shareholders. So if they have tools by which they know they can maximize their profits and they don't use them, I mean, that's some, uh, that's failing their fiduciary responsibility. So it's, it's everywhere. And, uh, you guys have to ask yourself, is, this the, is that the life, is that the life that you want? Because it's not really for most people. At the end of the day, if you knew and you could feel the uncertainty, the, the risk, uh, what it's like to be constantly attacked, uh, and I don't mean just like people saying mean things online, I mean like literally following you around the city, chasing you down at dining, you know, when you're eating or at parties, getting you fired from coaching Little League, getting fired from your job, preventing you from doing financial transactions, getting your social media accounts banned, silencing you, exiling you. If, you, that, if that's within your risk profile, then by all means, start, start talking about politics. <laughs> and you'll know, you'll know that you have reached some elements of influence when that shit starts happening, but it only gets worse from there um i doubt most people have risk appetite like that so you know i would focus them on other other elements of online marketing and sales get paid get laid uh what's the third one get paid and get laid i mean that's really all there is get paid get paid get laid you know focus them on that kind of stuff and 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 i would say steer clear of the political shit people ask me how do i get involved I'm like dude just start a diary and just write it to yourself and don't let anybody ever see it ever because It's irrational. To get involved in politics online today is totally irrational. The uh, chance of you having any influence over the election or even over anyone else's other votes out there is infinitesimally small. The risks of doing so are calculably very high. And so it is the exact opposite of a smart business venture in that you wanna look for Instead of instead of seeking out low-return, high-risk opportunities, <laughs> like writing about politics is, you should therefore seek out low-risk, high-return opportunities that other people haven't exploited. So that's where I would start my frame immediately if I was uh, beginning to see, uh, if I was exploring sort of an online business life for myself these days.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, two stories real quick. So one, I had a pal when I lived in Chicago doing comedy and producing shows out there and his name was Mikey and I was in kind of a similar situation to Mikey actually doing comedy in Chicago during the the Trump Clinton election was he was an open and out very public Trump supporter on social media but his act was just you know men and women and dating and here's what happened to my job kind of stuff right and I remember him getting banned from shows, put at the bottom of the list on open mics, people calling him racist and sexist in comedy groups where bookers from other cities were looking, trying to find talent, and just terrible shit happened to him. And I, I it's a shame because he was funny as hell and he's really good and his albums are still up. Maybe I'll put a link to those in the description. But like, he quit comedy. He's like, oh, fuck it, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go work at the... Uh, the uh, planetarium and look at stars all day fuck this I'm done and like I you know I can't say I blame him for that and even at like higher levels um Logos uh, has done a lot of work we've done a lot of work with Elliot Hulse and he was pretty apolitical for a stretch of time and then he out of nowhere decided that he wanted to start making where he's like here's a picture of Jesus here's a slab of red meat and here's a MAGA hat that's me now (laughs) <laughs> and I, I would get notifications of people messaging his Facebook page. And I, you know, go, we're going to, you're better off dead. You're terrible. You're a race traitor. He, he's mixed race, right? So you're a race traitor. You're all these." I'm like, Jesus Christ. And then there were other people who got obsessed. They were like, oh, Elliot likes Donald Trump. He's a God. And I'm like, all of this is freaking terrifying. And I, you know, as a kid, when you're, you know, when you're a teenager and you're looking at, you know, punk rock bands you like or comedians you like, and it's all, yeah, they're speaking truth to power. And, you know, maybe when I was younger, when you were younger, that might have been a safer thing to do. So you'd never understand, like, why are the publicists telling them not to talk about that? Why are they censoring their own? And it's like, dude, they're getting, their families are getting death threats. Yeah. So I, it's it's really sad and it's it's uh it's really gross so yeah maybe the best strategy for some people is to not walk into the minefield of death threats and and antifa mobs and and craziness
1: yeah um, I, I mean it, it there there is a certain sexiness to it let's let's be real like yeah. it's, it's exciting it's exciting and whether or not you're actually having any real influence which i i know that i am but like other people y- there's the veneer of it at least, you know, and um, it feels like you're on the cutting edge. Like, so we were just having this conversation in a liminal order yesterday. Uh, Art, art has been completely co-opted by the left and leftist art is, it's like, has the veneer of being anti-establishment, but it is all just establishment now. Um, So like, even what looks like to be protest art is actually establishment art given our current political climate. And so we are discussing like, where is the fringe of society, where is the art, where are the punks, where is the exciting intellectual and cultural work happening now? And guess what guys, it's on the right. You know, some of the best authors that I've read coming up, Delicious Tacos, Bronze Age, Bronze Age Pervert, you know, Roman, these guys, these guys are all coming up on the right and they're doing exciting, cutting edge, first-class, world-class literature, writing, production, philosophical thought, political thought. And that's where the exciting new artistic energy is. And it's gonna take a little bit for it to bubble up a little bit more. Um, And leftist comedy is dying, right? And leftist art in general is just so fucking boring and lame now. There's no edge to it at all. They think they're being edgy, right? But the edge has already been assimilated by the, by the mass culture. And so it is sort of where the outlaws and the renegades are these days. And it is where you're, it's risky, right? So it's like electric, you know, you're playing with fire every single day and that has certain appeal to a certain kind of person. I think for most people, that's something fun to watch. Not necessarily something fun to do. Or in a fantasy, it's fun to do. But in reality, it's really hard, it's really grueling, and you have to be totally fucking committed to your cause and to your art in order to persevere. And just like with any activity, if you only do something for a year or two, you're not going to really make much progress, right? Like, you have you have to reach a certain level of mastery, and then put in some more time too, right? And I think most people, uh, or a lot of people, will give up once they reach a certain level of competency. They're like, "Oh, that feels good. That's good enough for me." And then they move on to another task or another area, so another hobby, so they don't ever become real bona fide experts or gain a lot of power. So in order to do that, you have to be really good and clever, but then you also have to have some stamina and staying power and commitment. And, uh, you know, so to do that for the long run, you really have to be signing up for, you know, who was it? Chuck Palahniuk maybe who told me once, well, I read once. (laughs) Yeah. He told me Um, once, no, maybe it was Bukowski. I don't know. It was one of these guys who was like, once I started writing, I realized I was done with political or polite company forever. You can't you can't write honestly about the human condition and still find like good graces of normal everyday people because your job is to point out the fucked up worst shit that you can find so that we can have a better understanding of who we are. Of course, there's other ways to do it, but that's one way. And so it is exciting. It's an exciting place. It's an edge place. It's a twilight universe. It's not the mainstream, it's not under the spotlight of just normal tom dick and harry you know nebraska whatever no no slight to that of course but um it is it is definitely where the sizzle is right now and i'm happy i'm happy to be there for that uh but man you know my kids paid a price you know my son paid a price they still don't fully understand what happened why daddy lost his job or why this happened or why daddy couldn't coach or why do people hate you you know things like that they don't really understand just yet but uh you know, they've had to pay a price and I feel bad for that. That's the, that's like the one, one element that I do have some, you know, I wish that that didn't happen. Um, But for the rest of it, it suits me, dude. It suits me. I'd rather run through a brick wall than, you know, take my time walking around it and dancing, whatever. I want to, I want to just fucking go for it. So this is, this is the right place for me, but I don't know that it's the right place for everybody. And I say that like respectfully and like, like out of concern for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I it, honestly, your story is, is it's a very strong example of this massive cultural shift. And you've taken more, more like more bullets and you're probably in the top 1% of people have taken bullets over. Right. And yeah. I, you're kind of the thesis statement of your book. Democrats are deplorable right and it's like I I, I saw it happen with my friend Mikey I've seen it happen with some of my clients and it's like even with me I was when I was in in high school doing comedy at nights I was I was on the left I mean I was never super far out or anything but I was just kind of you know I'm a classical liberal (laughs) like that was just kind of a (laughs) position and then over time like I remember I Dude, I did a, a comedy show at my college where I made a joke about a family member I had who said some racist shit about black people. It wasn't okay. And I was mocking them. But in the joke, I had to utilize, you know, some stereotypes and some language. And I was in Chicago doing it. The room was one third Hispanic, one third black, and one third white people with blue hair. And the <laughs> only third that got pissed about it were the fucking professional white people who went on... and it sucked because I remember there were people who lived on my floor in my dorm who were friends with people I was friends with who were writing these long diatribes about how I'm a freaking bigot and it's like that hasn't stayed with me that was drama that lasted for maybe a week two weeks so I'm hardly some big victim over but I remember feeling like all right I probably shouldn't go to any parties this week I probably shouldn't go do comedy this week and I can't even imagine the scale of that like Okay, now I, I literally cannot go to my kids' baseball game to coach like I want to. I I probably shouldn't go into that city publicly and do a meetup in public because Antifa will show up. Like that's that's fucking insane.
1: Yeah.
0: And I so we're recording this the day after the um the Iowa <laughs> primary delays quality control whatever the fuck so i have a feeling that this question is going to be especially relevant today because it's going to make the number go up from nine to maybe a bit a bit more than nine but why did nine million people vote for obama and then say whoops and go to donald trump why did that happen and do you think that that's a pattern that's going to continue in light of yesterday's events
1: yeah, I, I've always made the argument that the the path from Democrat to deplorable is pretty much a one way ticket, right? It's like, first of all, first of all, if you leave the Democrats to go vote for Trump, they're not going to want you back anyway, Democrats, right? First of all, second of all, it it is a grueling experience to have to shed your prior associations and and some of your belief systems in order to come out on the other side, and that's not something that people want to throw away you get invested, right? And you want to be consistent. That's another one of the elements, foundational elements of persuasion is people, people like to be consistent with their thinking and with their feelings and their actions. And so making the very bold effort, if they did it publicly or at least even to their family to say that they voted for Obama twice at least, and then went to vote for Trump, you know, I think that there's an element of consistency people will will pick up on, but that's just psychology. In reality, there were so many so many issues, you know, in my book, we identified a number of them. One was just the ongoing impact of globalization, uh, the way that uh, the engagement with China and the World Trade Organization in 1999 and uh, early 2000 led to just the, the carving out of the Midwest of America. We lost millions of jobs, of uh, manufacturing jobs, which isn't just for 3 million people, it's their families and then their extended families. So, you know, that's really impacting like probably tens of millions of people and we looked at uh, also the, the life on college campuses as a number of big, big, big factor where basically every kid goes into college and gets indoctrinated into leftist ideology right off the bat, starting with orientation, where they tell you, you got to start introducing yourself by your, you know, what your pronouns are and that, uh, you know, the people's feelings are now your responsibility and stuff like that. And they tell you all about rape culture, which doesn't exist and. So college campus life was definitely a big one. Fighting back against uh, radical feminism, another. So like one of the big topic people talk about, even in hushed terms, even in economics, they call it uh, the de-risking of the economy or they call it the feminization of the economy. Uh, we see the demasculinization of our society. Um, we see all kinds of negative effects from radical feminisms rise through through our institutions and people are tired of it. So there's a whole complex that goes along with it. It's, you know, you're a racist. You take this implicit association test. and Now we've proven that you're a racist and you must be brainwashed and bad thinks eradicated out of your brain. And then there's the whole element of the network warfare going on too. And just understanding that the neoliberal globalists, which were the same as the Republicans and the Democrats, both were just did not have anybody's best interest in mind, but their own, their grand strategies were flawed. And in fact, one of the desired outcomes of their policies was, was what happened in the Midwest, you know, destruction of jobs and the end of industries, which leads to deaths of despair and people dying and drinking themselves to death and lowering, you know, lower more life expectancy rates, like like a fucking epidemic of death, right? It literally is leading to people dying. Uh, no exaggeration. More people are dying from opioids than never died from AIDS, for example. But you don't hear the same emphasis, right? Because it's just a bunch of dumb white hicks who are getting fucked up on opium or opiates. Right. Um, and they don't have the same political power. And I think they felt that. and They feel that. and We all feel that. And so if you, if you, don't, if you believe that we shouldn't just open up uh, the whole world for the whole world to come and give away everything good that we've got, uh, and that 's not about race that 's just about economics right uh, and if you don 't believe in radical feminism if you if don 't want to see radical feminism take over all of our institutions and you know with the American Psychological Association you know pathologizing masculinity and male behavior and colleges telling everybody that every guy is a rapist and you need to be more scared for them Hillary Clinton just today saying that we need to raise our boys to be feminists I mean. <laughs> These are all the things that people resisted against. And I think that those folks in the middle with us, the 9 million guys, you know, all of us, I think, would have said that we were relatively socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And I think that that's pretty much still the same. when, when, When gay marriage was decided, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's one less reason that I have to be a Democrat anymore because I was always in favor of gay, gay marriage. If you want to get married, fine. If you want to get divorced, fine. <laughs> fine. I don't recommend either of those, but if you want to, fine. I don't care who, what people do with their contracts. Um, so once that was off the table, once Donald Trump signaled very clearly that he was pro-cannabis legalization, that was another thing that came off the table for me. And so in fact, it's, it's actually the progress of on these social issues that have led, created opportunity for people to switch parties because uh, those were some really key civil liberties issues that were important to me that kept me on the left. And that's why I think you find, you, you joked, you said classical liberal. I mean, yeah, classical liberals. Th- those are the people without a home right now because the left is definitely illiberal and the right wasn't always. So we're trying to sort of create this new, this new structure within and you know, both the parties are basically falling apart as it is. Donald Trump took over the Republican party with an outside networked campaign. And it looks like Bernie Sanders is going to do the same thing uh, with the Democrats at this point. I mean, I'm not making any predictions, but it seems as though his grassroots independent network has been able to take over a party of which he doesn't even really consider himself to be a member, right? He was independent for a long time. And now they're going to take over the Democrats. And so like, it's basically Trump was a weapon to destroy the establishment. And it seems to be working to some degree. You can quibble on some of his policy initiatives and whatnot, but budgets and spending and tax cuts but the bigger issue was to just fucking throw a wrench in the thing and watch it just seize up and explode and i think that that has definitely happened and uh i think we still want to see more of it we see that there's still a need donald trump's inability to get things done that he wanted to get done and his forced acquiescence into these horrible budget bills and spending bills and stuff show you that the establishment power is still deep and strong and still needs to be wrestled back to the people and so i think that that's both what bernie and trump's campaigns are all about.
0: And so, one of the ways that power is kind of being wrestled back to folks who wouldn't really have representation or, or power or voice otherwise is through this new kind of media, new education landscape. And um, I, I know you got to get going here soon, so this is the last question. But um, with liminal order, one of the things that I've kind of noticed broadly is information as a commodity. I call it the information industry, it's a mix of education you know, journalism and media, and then the arts, it, there's, the internet caused such a massive change with it that the business models for all three of those sectors are changing so radically. It started with um, art, with, okay, now music is streaming and the commodity is not the information. It's the activity in the community surrounding concerts and festivals and, and band merch and stuff. It moved on to media and politics where it's like, okay, it's a twenty four hour cycle everyone's a talking head sharing talking points with the same opinions, and what's more important now are these you know sort of asymmetrical small groups that are popping up and, and causing change and now it's happening in education and it's it's taken a little while longer with education because that's something that up until recently most adults wouldn't necessarily want to continue their education. most kids thought college was the way to go there's such institutional gridlock and changing college and all the student loan debt. And there's so much baggage that goes into it, but it's groups like liminal order and, and, and other, other businesses and other groups too. But education is becoming less about the content and the ideas because that's everywhere. You can get that anywhere. And what I'm seeing is that it's now more about can a teacher Help you become. Can a teacher help you grow and change and actually physically embody the theory that you're all reading about and talking about? So I guess I just want to give you the floor to talk about and and explain the conception of and where you're going with liminal order in that. Sure,
1: sure. That's a great. That's a great setup. So um, the
0: where do I start with that?
1: The value of music became zero because it's free is everywhere. And artists know that too. I, uh, I went and hung out with um, the lead singer from All That Remains earlier this year. His name's Phil. He's on, uh, he's on Twitter. He's one of my guys. Nice. And uh, I went and saw his last show up in Baltimore and we're hanging out backstage. And he's like, look, man, I'm basically a traveling t-shirt salesman now. So they, <laughs> right? so they, they, spend, they spend one year touring and then the next year in the studio, the next year touring, next year in the studio. And he said they make most of their money by selling t-shirts. And that's because the music is free because now they have to give it away. They literally you put an album out and you put it out for free, <laughs> right? So that value in that creative endeavor has been stripped away. And so the value actually in music and information today is not in so much the creation of the new information, but how to curate, how to pick the most important information out of a sea of noise. Okay. And so w- I was talking earlier about discernment. That's one of the key things to helping you have personal sovereignty is increasing your ability to discern what's valuable and what isn't, what's useful, what's helpful. And so it's funny because I was a DJ back in the day in the 90s and I got paid for curation back then too. So it's, it's actually kind of interesting <laughs> that I'm, I'm still in that same, that same mix. Um, but boom bum mix. Anyway, uh, DJ joke, (laughs) for me, I made one joke for me. Uh, um, (laughs) An inside joke with yourself is not inside joke, it's just a dud, okay? So um, (laughs) uh, the liminal order, uh, the gist there, and you mentioned it very clearly, you said is embodiment, right? So that's another element of the six factors of personal sovereignty is embodiment. Another one is choice, and within choice is commitment. So there's a commitment. There's a, you discern what's good, you choose which way to go, make a commitment to it, and then you embody the ideals that you have adopted through your behavior. And that is the general framework for liminal order itself. I set out to, to go on a mission to expand and update my mental model of the universe um, and, to, and to have a better set of tools with which to observe um, the universe discern what is important and then to live it. And that's what we're doing in the liminal order. Every day we spend time trying to enhance our abilities to understand the world, not first through, uh, you know, like cognitive skills, but through personal sovereignty elements. So we make sure that we're focused on our physical fitness. We have fitness standards. We make sure that we're managing our stress and our anxiety and whatnot by meditating. So we have meditation challenges as ironic of a statement as that sounds, um, <laughs> hurry up and meditate. <laughs> and, uh, and next, and next month we're doing, a um, some, a workshop on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a, a non-medication uh, technique to help manage stress and anxiety and to help control your mind and your, your mindset. We're also going to be working on a, uh, we have a logic workshop coming up with a logic professor, philosophy professor. So what we're doing is, is we're trying to, we're trying to tune our instruments to be the best version of themselves possible. Because we live in this chaotic world where nobody really has the answers of what the future is supposed to look like. The old system's crumbling right before our very eyes, and just the fog and the chaos of the pre, before the new system stuff is just now happening. So that's what the name liminal means. Liminality is the state between two fixed points. The liminality is the unknown, it's the chaos between two points of stability. In other circumstances, liminality is like uh, what happens when you enter into a rite of passage or a ritual. And so, liminality is is a is a state of unknowing where foundations and and institutions and established things come and go and and they turn to dust and new structures and new substrates of thought and thinking and life and society are being built. And it's a chaotic period. And that's why the liminal order is a pun, right? It's or it's a play on words. You can't have order in liminality. That's sort of contradictory, but uh, but order is like fraternity. So this is, this is an order of men who are committed to enduring and thriving in this period of liminality. And the way that we do that is by becoming the best people that we can be, strongest that we can be, so we can be a better service to first ourselves, then to our families, then to our communities, and then hopefully to the nation. And so that's what we're doing. It's an academy, it's a fraternity, Uh, it's, uh, just a bunch of guys having fun goofing off. I mean, some of our busiest channels are on food and drinks and sex and stuff, but we do have ongoing study conversations around all these issues, meditation, fitness, uh, discernment, embodiment, choice, logic you know, how to train your mind, mindset. This is another reason why mindsets become such a popular subject these days is because our fucking minds are fucked up. <laughs> and yeah. we, need, we need to fix them. We need a new mindset to engage with this world and to thrive. And so that's, that's what we're doing. And the guys uh, support me then in, in my mission of going out there and talking to experts, like I'm talking to Scott Adams tomorrow. Uh, I'm talking to head of major political think tank the week after that you know, high-level evolutionary psychologists, uh, you know, PhD thinkers on all kinds of things. Um, artificial intelligence is what I'm doing after this call here. And so, you know, they support me in going out and trying to discern the right information. I bring it back, we talk about it, we synthesize it, we, you know, implement it into our model, and then we move forward and try to do better. Uh, and the one last element of it is really service. So it's really about giving back. And so We have done coordinated community service work, charity work, where we all got together and donated certain things to charity across the nation. Uh, And then we do service work internally with each other. So we've got mentors and mentees, and we've got a community care committee uh, where people who are experiencing crisis or trauma or something, we get together, we support them either through money or effort or time or something. Uh, and so it's, a, it's really a community uh, in, every, in every way you can think of it. We've had meetings in New York, D.C., Denver, Austin, Nashville, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and more coming. So, you know, we're nationwide. We got guys getting together all over the place. And we're all just trying to do the best that we can so that we can be the best that we can so we can help our family and our community. And we all see this as the answer to this big problem, which is what the fuck are we going to do? With feminism and and the the feminization of America, the de-risking of our uh, economy, and political correctness, and all the stuff that we're dealing with, this this is our answer. This is what we decided is the answer. And uh, I'm just honored and grateful that I get to to work on this every single day. The guys trust me enough to go out there and do it for them, and uh, we are just continue to grow. We got 150 guys in less than what, in seven months. I suspect we'll be about 250 by the end of the year. And from there, who knows what's going to happen, man.
0: Wow, dude, that's, I commend you. Congrats on, on growing so big and getting stuff done. Thank you. Um, it was an honor to talk to you today. I had like this whole list of questions. We got to about a third of them. So I'd love to have you back on at some point and, and go deep on other subjects. But
1: yeah, I'd be look. happy to do that, man. I appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, that's, that's it for now. JackMurphyLive.com for the blog, for the podcast, for the book Democrats, it's deplorable. You can find that on, on Amazon. If you're looking there, get, get it on Kindle uh, on Jack You can also find the liminal order and get on the email list for when membership opens up. They currently do have a wait list because it's so popular and <laughs> I believe that's about, oh, and at Jack Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y, Jack Murphy live on Twitter and social media. Go find him. Go follow him. It's great stuff. Jack, right. thank you so much for being on today.
1: Hey, my pleasure, man. And seriously, uh, if you want to do this again, maybe in a month or so, I'd be up for it.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jack. All, All right. right. Thanks for tuning care, in. Have a good day. All right, guys, we did it. We made it to the end. Thank you for fast forwarding to my beautiful face. I don't blame you for doing it. I don't really know what this thing is, but you know, we'll figure it out. We'll get there guys. I hope you enjoyed this show, this episode of the show. Please subscribe and, and stay tuned for more making a scene. Please go follow Jack at Jack Murphy live on Twitter, on all social media and his website is Jack And you can find his blog, his podcast there and his book, Democrats are deplorable. And um, I don't know if there are openings when you're listening to this, cause they often, uh, close membership, but if you're interested, if you liked what you heard from Jack, go check out his liminal order group. Um, and if you want to check out my group, you can do that too. If you're a freelancer, content creator, producer, uh, a cameraman, a fucking, a, you know, a sound technician. If you're on any kind of event crew production crew, or if you're just a freelance artist, Uh, And in you know, affiliate marketer, influencer marketer, people who are out there doing things, operating with other businesses and other brands, whether you're just starting out or whether you've been in it for 10 years, I'd encourage you to check out the artworks group where we're helping people like you improve your craft and your career. We're all, you know, collaborating and masterminding, posting our own opportunities. And then, of course, I'll be in there if I see, you know, work opportunities at my agency, other agencies uh, creators that I really, you know, appreciate and respect if they're hiring, I will always post opportunities in there. Um, and then of course we, we talk about how we can, you know, be, be participating in our career in a way that, that we really want to, that, that feels authentic to us and that we're fairly compensated for that. So we're honing our crafts, we're honing our careers. We're also posting memes every Sunday. We're posting memes and they're great memes. So please come look at our memes. And if you like this show, please also consider checking out logos.productions. That is the URL. Fucking nailed it. www.logos.productions. You can add a backslash. You don't have to. If you're fancy, you can do it. I'll see you next time, kids. Have a good day.